Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, Senior Front-End Engineer on the Maltano team at GitLab. And today on our panel, we have a brand new panelist, Elizabeth Fine, who is our view extraordinaire that I happened to meet at ViewConf. And we had her on as a guest in episode 72. So be sure to check it out. Hi, yeah, I'm so happy to be back and be on the panel. Great. We're excited to have you on. And also on our panel today, we have Ari Clark, UX UI engineer at Liquid. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about testing. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. Elizabeth, let's kick it off. All right, yeah. So I thought we could talk about testing today because it's something that, you know, I end up doing pretty much with everything that I build with Vue. And Vue has a lot of really good built-in test utilities that you can use with a lot of nice functionality. And there are a lot of little things that I find myself getting stuck on with unit testing Vue components. So that'd be a good conversation topic to have with other people who are doing the same kind of thing. Or not doing. The or not doing. <laughs> yeah. I feel so called out. <laughs> oh, I, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> So I guess let's start from the beginning. I mean, Elizabeth, how did you get like, what was your experience like getting into testing? Because I think a lot of people, especially in the front end, like this is very much an afterthought when it comes to testing. Yeah. So I'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts and we can kind of go around. I never unit tested anything until about a year ago. That's just because I was not as good of a developer back then and also hadn't really heard, you know, heard about unit testing or didn't take the time to look into it. And I was working on a lot of projects that just needed to get out the door really fast and that had the potential to change really quickly. So unit testing was kind of like, oh, by the time I've unit tested it or written unit tests for this feature, the requirements have changed. So what's the point kind of thing? But now um, what I try to do is for every view component that I write, I have a test file that goes along with it. And that test file uses, so view test utils, then uses a, what are those called? Um, it's like NYC Istanbul. It's a code coverage reporter. Mm. So um, I try and keep the code coverage up to like between 80 and 90%. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. That is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's crazy because it ends up slowing down, um, you know, a lot of things because you change basically anything in that file and then your test break and you have to like, oh, you know, go back into the test file and figure out what corresponds to what, what ID did I change? What data UI did I change? And try and fix that. So it can be kind of a pain, but I guess, you know, it's worth it. <laughs> did you guys about- unit test at all in your projects? Sometimes. Did you get into it at all? <laughs> I like to think about writing tests. About it? Yeah. <laughs> but actually, no, I think that that's, that's an interesting topic in and of itself to discuss. So I've heard so many different like theories and approaches on unit testing. Like some people are like, 
you know, don't ever even try for hundred percent. Actually, I think people pretty unanimously. I think I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I've even heard people say that like 20% code coverage is fine as long as you're picking the right things to Mm. test. But that gets difficult, like (laughs) knowing what the right thing to test is. So yeah, there, there are days where I'm like, okay, this is, I'm introducing a feature that could have a lot of potential to break other things. Mm-hmm. So I think I'll write a test to make sure this one actually works. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of my approach to it. Like, I'm like, Ooh, this is dangerous. Better test it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point. I think that going up to 80 and 90% can actually be not the best approach because it ends up, at least from my experience, forcing you to test things that really don't probably need to be tested and make your application a lot um, more brittle than it should be. So I agree with your approach, but it's kind of, (laughs) I don't know, I have the threshold set in my projects and I just try to stick up to it. Yeah, that's a great standard. Yeah, on my team, I work under our API developer. He literally writes unit tests for everything. He does not merge code without unit tests. I'm just like, wow, that's incredible. But he estimates that he spends probably at least 40% of his time on tests. Mm. However, he gets to commit with a lot more confidence than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so because we don't have pull requests where I work because it's, you know, it's a startup. We have to move really fast. And yeah, there's really no one who could review my pull requests or my bosses because your code's just so awesome. Oh, oh yeah, totally. No, <laughs> nobody else writes. And no Unreviewable. <laughs> but yeah, we'll go with because I'm so awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, like I, especially if you are the only developer on your team, like I more and more feel as if my only saving grace could be unit tests. <laughs> but then again, it's like, you know, if I'm writing bad tests, like, is it even helping? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth, as far as your um, journey to testing, what was like the impetus for you deciding to start testing, right? Because most of us start with just building stuff in HTML CSS, making it look mm-hmm. great. And so what made you like, I'm going to take the plunge and I'm just going to start writing these things called tests? Well, it's a standard at the company that I work at. Got it. So that's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is good. <laughs> so we pretty much have established this convention of, you know, with every view component has a test file that goes with it. Technically, every component I write has a test file that goes with it. Sure, a lot of them, the only test is is a component, but whatever. <laughs> Thanks, At least Chris. you have a file. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just because we're using the View Enterprise Boiler. <laughs> and it just does that when I create a component. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really, no, but actually, like that to me sort of having that ease of entry into tests, like it's already set up for me, et cetera. Tell us more about this. I think people who aren't using the enterprise boilerplate should know about this. Yeah, no. So um, Chris, Fritz, if those of you who have never listened to the show before, (laughs) don't know (laughs) that he wrote the enterprise boilerplate. One of the things that is included in that is generators for components. And when you generate a component, it also generates a test file to go with it. And it has a custom matcher to test whether it's a valid component or not. And that just automatically gets written with every component that you generate. So at a minimum, I have one 
valid test for all of them. (laughs) But no, I mean, like for me, that was sort of one of the barriers to entry of testing because like when I was in um, a coding boot camp, like they did try to at least educate us about unit tests and the value, et cetera. But setting up unit testing um, libraries and stuff, like I found like confusing and depending on your project structure, it's totally different, et cetera. I'm just like, ah, I don't want to think about it. So yeah, I, I have to say that like, I don't really have any excuses other than I don't have time. I get this out the door right now, which I don't know if that's particularly valid. <laughs> <laughs> I would say anyone who's like scared of having to set that up, I mean, at least reference the enterprise boilerplate. It, it does give you some idea of efficient ways to do it because I'm bad at efficient ways to do things. <laughs> so when you say that it tests, that it is a component, what exactly does that mean? So oh, it tests that the component much. is set up correctly or that it mounts? Or... That. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, hmm. Where is the custom matcher? Darn it. If Chris were here, he would know exactly <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Maybe I'm going to defer that question until a little bit later while I go through my repo. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. So have either of you worked at a place where there was a QA department? So like quality assurance? So you actually had like testing engineers helping out? I do have that where I work. Uh, In fact, like our test team is probably about half the size of our software team. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they do more than just software testing. They also do hardware integration testing. Got it. Yeah. I mean, but there's a lot of blurred lines there. Yeah. How about yourself, Elizabeth? Yeah. So I work with a QA, um, manual QA, and then an SDET. So running automated testing and also manual testing on everything. So it's something I've been trying to do recently is give our manual QA a list of the things that I've been writing unit tests for mm-hmm. and also the automated QA. So that way they don't have to overlap and that helps give our manual QA some <laughs> extra assurance that what I'm writing isn't going to break when I add new features and things like that. She doesn't have to go back and, you know, regress other components when I merge a branch. So it's helpful with that. Wow. That makes sense. That makes me feel bad now. Um, no, it's just um, some of the previous companies I've worked at, we've had QA engineers, but I think the team ended up relying on them sort of to kind of catch things that we might have missed just because I don't think there was, a, there was not a discipline for writing tests during that time. So we do our best to make sure everything was right, but then to the point that you two have been doing as far as like unit tests and integration, there are always talks of doing it, but then to your point of like project managers pushing deadlines and those sort of things, mm-hmm. we always found a reason to be like, well... If we don't get it, QA will get it, which is such <laughs> so bad. So bad, but there was definitely a mentality of that. Oh, no, yeah. Like, yeah, they that should happens. touch it. It'll be fine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> do your um, QA engineers, so how much do they regress after each feature is merged in? Do they have to go over a whole um, sort of user flow or do they just test the feature that was merged in? At least at the companies I used to work at, there was some regression testing for sure as far as like core features, um, whether it was like, again, if it was like searching for documents, they would run the same scenarios. And so those are like integration tests. Those are a little bit more, we couldn't have really written unit tests for that anyhow. Yeah. Those have been more ETE, which I'd be curious, actually, that that's another topic we should get to. 
mostly, yeah, touching the features that we pushed out. So I think that's what made it a little easier because we did try to be more thorough with testing. Although, actually, you mentioned unit tests. So does cross-browser testing, is that something that you're, you, like, you all have, like, is that nope. a thing? <laughs> <laughs> we only have to support Chrome, for which I am so grateful. Wait, you have, like, really? the dream setup. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, because, okay, so part of that sort of stemmed from, you know, picking and choosing our battles in terms of how much time and resources we had to dedicate to developing our software. And obviously cross-browser testing is time-consuming and tedious. So uh, from the get-go, the idea was that it would be an Electron app. Uh. It never really caught on per se, but I mean, anymore, really, we're just supporting Chromium. So that now includes browsers other than just Chrome, because I believe Edge is now based on Chromium, or at least there's a version. Uh, Brave is built on Chromium. And actually, we have found that uh, enterprise customers don't want to use Chrome because of the data that it sends back. Uh, So yeah, right. (laughs) I had never even thought about that. But fortunately, because Brave is built on Chromium, there's no breakage. Whew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How about yourself, Elizabeth? What's been your experience with cross-browser testing? Um, you know, I'm not the <laughs> I'm not the gold standard of cross-browser testing. That is yeah. something that I generally, like you were saying, Ben, I think, oh yeah, QA will figure that out. Find the bugs, but you know, I try to at least check things in Internet Explorer, you know, eleven or so before yeah. I hand over, just to make sure, because that's just where the we're most likely to get, you know, problems. And if I know about certain JavaScript features that I'm using, like for example, the window.scroll to API, mm-hmm. where you can um, set the behavior to be smooth and smooth scroll. I know Safari doesn't doesn't support that. So I'll add a, a polyfill or something or, you know, double check that it works if I know for a fact that I'm using features that might be a little bit more on the cutting edge. But yeah, I try. Uh, not the best though. <laughs> So you mentioned IE11. Do you use like, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the tools anymore. What do you use to get your emulator? Because I think most of us are developing on Macs. Mm-hmm. So do you have like a tool that you use to test on IE? Because I don't think we can um, download that natively, if I'm not mistaken. No, I don't, I don't think we can. There are a lot of people you know, around that have Windows devices. Ah, that's um, helpful. We, yeah, we have a lot of devices that are actually real hardware you know, that's, within our team. That's, nice. that that's really great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm trying to... Uh, what yeah, was it called? Cool. What about... I mean, have you... Oh, Are gosh. You browser Stack? Yes, Browser Stack. That's browser Stack, yeah. The, I've used that in the yeah. past. Browser Stack's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think we use um, back when I was at Politico uh, for oh, okay. cross-browser testing, which is nice because you can actually set like the OS and then the browser. So, yes. um, yeah, I'm sure... I mean, bug. Yes. You can use your local host. It's great. Yeah, they've done a great job with that uh, software. So if anyone's looking for like a solution for that, definitely check browser stack out. Yeah. So we've talked a little about unit testing. I think... So actually, Elizabeth, you mentioned view test utils. Yeah, should we talk about that? Yes, we should. Because that's... 
Yes. What'd you say? Do you guys use you test utils? Yes. I have used it, but do not currently <laughs> use it. Okay. <laughs> I went to Ed Yerberg's um, testing workshop in London last year. I believe it's uh, Yerborough. I'm just Yerborough. Oh gosh, <laughs> I totally forked that up. It's okay. <laughs> yes, Yerborough. But yes, I went to his workshop. That's most of my uh, experience with it. But yes, let's talk about view test utils. You want to give a summary to the audience, Elizabeth? Yeah. So. Vue Test Utils, I think, is the library that you get with Vue CLI. It basically lets you just, in a test file, you can pull in your component, you can mount your component, and then you can just do really sort of basic assertions, and you can combine it with other testing frameworks like Mocha and Chai, and then basically uh, run the code that's in your methods and see if you get the result that you're expecting. So I've had a really good experience with Vue Test Utils. I think it makes using Vue in, in testing really, really easy. You can just mount your component. Talk about what mounting a component means in a testing scenario. Um, so, because that's yeah, to me at first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So I know. curse of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> when you say, um, you know, like when you. You create a view component on a page and it goes through the lifecycle hooks where it's created and then it's mounted and then it's uh, just before destroyed and then it's destroyed, et cetera, those kinds of things. So in view test utils, you just import your component like you would in a regular JavaScript file. And then you can basically use uh, one of the methods in view test utils to mount the component and um, that basically gets your component running on the page. Uh, but, hang on, let me re-say that. <laughs> that <laughs> no, it's so great. That was good, though. That yeah. basically gets your component running uh, within the test environment. And so from there, you can set uh, your data attributes. You can set props. You can even replace some of your methods with spies and things like that. So you can check that your methods were called or check you know, what arguments your methods were called with. So that kind of thing is really helpful just to make sure all of your methods are working as you expect. I guess the challenge that I run into is not testing that view is working because a lot of times I'll test, oh, when I click, you know, if I have a V on click handler on a button, uh, does it run my method? Right. That's not a very useful test. That was one of the things I struggled with the most when I first started unit testing view components was trying to figure to draw the line between am I just testing view or am I testing my contribution to this component mm. above <laughs> and beyond view? Because like sometimes like it's sort of hard to to see that line because like in your head, okay, a critical part of functionality of this is that when I click this, this happens. But if you're using, you know, a Vion directive, like where <laughs> you're just like, wait, am I, am I just testing view at this point? Because pretty sure they have their own tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And you mentioned spies earlier, Elizabeth. What, what are spies? Yeah, so I'm kind of new to using spies, but basically from my understanding, what you can do is you can sort of initiate a spy. So in code, that would look like maybe const click spy equals new spy. And then you can then set that spy to 
the value of one of your view methods. So that way it replaces your view method with a spy and the spy basically just gives you information about when it runs. So that way um, you can check, did this method run? Because the spy will spy on, you know, your code and let you know if the method ran or not. And it'll also tell you what arguments it was called with or how many times it was called. And then you can write uh, assertions and things like check that the method was called once with arguments, this and that was true. And then you know that some more complex functionality in your code is in fact working and accepting the parameters that you expect it to. So it's sort of like when, you know, we as developers insert like a console log after every line of a function (laughs) just to to see what's happening. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but like for computers in an automated (laughs) way. Yeah. Although the console log way kind of works better sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I swear I've never done that. Like I've never console logged, got to this line. Never done that. (laughs) (laughs) I've Um, never console logged. Please work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me neither. Totally haven't done that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Based on what you just said, spies is something are, are watchers on the methods to sort of let you know like what's happening, but they don't yeah. necessarily test what's happening inside of the method, which you would have probably a separate unit test for. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would. Again, I'm not super experienced with yeah, spies, so I basically use spies to test that methods were called. Like, say, I have a method that calls another method and yeah. passes in some arguments to it, that kind of thing, or well, one thing I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to unit test scrolling and making sure that my scroll listener was added and also that on scroll, it's calling the proper functions. But I'm kind of stuck on how to actually simulate the scroll event in a Ooh. test environment. Yeah, that sounds rough. I wish I had yeah. some insight. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh at me because this is probably a really bad idea, but I tried just setting the window, what is it, the property? It's window dot a page Y offset or something, which basically controls off of the page. I just tried setting that to a hundred to see if that caused a scroll event to happen. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, that's what I would have tried. Yeah. 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 I totally <laughs> but yeah, to your, uh, to your question, Ben. Yeah. So the way I usually approach it is I use spies to determine whether or not the function was called and what arguments it was called with. But separately, I will test whether or not the result was what I expected it to be. Got it. Which you don't need spies to do that part <laughs> if you just call the function separately. So it sounds like you'd get a little bit of performance gain as well, right? Because you're not actually running the method every time. It's more of just a, a check. So if you had a large test suite, spies would help to reduce, I guess, the... Uh, I'm not actually sure on that one. I mean, yeah. that's true of using mocks, but I think spies actually run the method still. They actually run the method still? Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. But yeah, you could also use a mock. Yes, and what are mocks, Ari? Oh, God. Why? Why did I do that? <laughs> uh, essentially, a mock is uh, what it sounds like. You uh, instruct the test to replace the actual method with some dummy method so that, yeah, you could just... Uh, 
spy on the mock. <laughs> Let's get real meta here. Uh, yeah. So yeah, when you're like, it's, it's especially useful for testing asynchronous operations or um, API calls, because in a test, you don't, you really don't want to actually be hitting your production API or even a test API. <laughs> so you sort of basically set up an entire mock API, which is so tedious, but <laughs> Yeah, I have so many regrets about that because I don't, I don't even know what the value for us at this point. <laughs> but actually, no, I take that back. There were some recent test failures where because we had made changes, it absolutely made sense why that was happening. So <laughs> Nice. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So it sounds like then the mocks are sort of equivalent to like a shallow mount on a component where it doesn't render every all the children underneath. It just concerns okay, yeah. the top layer. Now that you've explained it that way, I do agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is it? Yes, it is. <laughs> ben, you're very good at summarizing things. Whenever you say that know, to me, I'm like, like, why didn't I just say that? <laughs> yeah, why didn't I just say that the first time? <laughs> I, I'm learning here too. I'm trying to make sure I'm following everything quickly. <laughs> Yeah, so and, and yeah, for those listening, so um, Elizabeth had mentioned mounting earlier. There's also uh, shallow mount is actually really popular in tests as well because when you're testing components, you don't need to render all the subchildren and you don't need the test to do all that. Sometimes you just need to test the parent container. And so shallow mount is a way for you to just test that layer and it'll, uh, using the other term, it'll mock out the rest of the children because you don't need to know all the inner workings of the rest of it. And I'm going to be honest, I avoid using mount like the plague. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Partly just because some tests were written by a uh, previous teammate that I eventually had to just comment out like multiple test files. (laughs) Because because, like it was a cascade of failure. And I sort of feel like if there's cascading test failures, there was something wrong with the test, right? Like it only... You should only be testing that that very specific part of it. And I find that you can get into very murky water very quickly using mount because, yeah, you have this tendency to want to test all of the children as well uh. when that, to me, should be mostly separate. So if you are using mount, I still say be very shallow in how you test children. <laughs> Yeah, that's almost like you're starting to get into more integration tests, right? And those should really yeah. be a separate thing all in itself. Exactly. Yeah. No, like uh, I still have to go back and clean up those tests because it is a critical feature. <laughs> like, I just like, you know, when I was, cause what happened was when we first started our rewrite, we were mm-hmm. very good about writing tests for everything until like about the last month or two of the rewrite, at which point 
we felt the pressure and we were just like, uh, yeah, we'll do that later. We'll totally come back to that. <laughs> totally. Totally. Famous last words. So, note on, uh, on my monitor with a list of components I never wrote tests for. I mean, that was just the list from like that month. That list is actually way longer now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we were writing tests for everything and got, I don't even remember what I was saying. Oh, ADHD is super fun. <laughs> 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 Does anyone remember what I was talking about? You were writing tests for everything. You guys were being really good about it. Then the deadline approached and you're like, ah, I we don't have time for this anymore. So you... Right. So, okay. Thank you. So for a, a long time after like the initial rewrite was done, we didn't really write tests. And then, you know, I lost my, uh, my teammate. So then it was just me. So then I really wasn't writing tests. And then, I don't know, about six months ago, I was like, you know... I should probably write tests. <laughs> it was like things had slowed down a bit again, and I had some time to go back and try to address some tech debt, which I don't know if you guys have ever actually addressed your own tech debt, but it is excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, why did I make these poor decisions? Why? <laughs> um, yeah. So at that point, I was just trying to establish a baseline for the tests and tried to get all of them to pass so that any new tests I wrote, I could easily verify while running all of the tests. Uh, yeah, I had to give up on those because it, like, I mean, among other things, it kept telling me that the wrapper was undefined. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, okay, never mind. I give up. Just comment that out. <laughs> And change the test to be one plus one equals two. <laughs> I mean, what? I've never written a test like this just to get it to pass. <laughs> Something I find difficult with unit testing is, and I've, we've been kind of as a team trying to address this right now. Usually, uh, we put a feature into PR, pull request. A few other people don't use that abbreviation. I'm sure everyone else does. Yeah, so we put things into PR when they're complete. And... As a team, we kind of decided that the feature is complete when it has unit tests. But then you go and get review and feedback on your PR, and you have to go back and rewrite, you know, however many unit tests to address that. And then after that, your feature goes into QA, and QA finds, you know, a bug here and a bug there. And then again, you have to go back and rewrite your unit tests again. So what we were thinking about as a workflow is actually making unit tests a separate story with the commitment that we will still do them. The feature isn't done until that story is complete. So it's kind of like a sub story. And then um, the feature will go into PR and QA without the unit test. And then the unit tests write, are written afterwards. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I find that super interesting. Partly because one thing I've heard a lot of people say is that you tend to write more brittle code if you don't write the test first. Because if you're writing code to make tests pass, you tend to do it in a more flexible way. And you also tend to distill the test down to the actual functionally important parts rather than implementation detail. I struggle with that balance a lot myself because, I mean, every once in a while, I'm super awesome and I write the tests first and, you know, the whole uh, red-green refactor, but uh, that's pretty rare. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. What's red-green refactor? Uh, so red-green refactor, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Basically, the methodology of test-driven development, where you write your test first, 
and all of your tests should fail at that point. And then at that point, you start writing your code to make the test pass and then refactor. If you, so you go red, green, red, green as you <laughs> continue to make your tests. I mean, yeah, that's usually what ends up happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a really good point, Ari. And people always talk about test-driven development and the benefits of it and the value of it and something definitely worth looking into because brittle tests are the worst. Yes. Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. The only thing but, that's tricky about it is sometimes I don't, like, I don't know how I'm going to build something until I've yeah. actually poked around and started building it. But you're right. Part of the point is That's that point. it should matter. <laughs> yeah. Or at least like True. you're testing basic functionality. Like when you're, so Ed Yarborough's book, uh, Testing Vue.js Applications, I cannot recommend it enough. Because not only does he go into the specifics of testing a Vue.js application, he also covers sort of general testing best practices. And I really liked how he explained it in that the, your first step should be listing the requirements for the component, you know, figuring out what the exact functional capabilities need to be. And that's what your test should be revolving around. That way, your the implementation of it stops mattering as long as the requirement is met. <laughs> but that is so much easier said than done, <laughs> at least in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like, yeah. Point. I wish I had like super clear requirements from the get-go. That'd be awesome. Because <laughs> I feel like I don't care what company you work at. If you have 100% super clear requirements every time, I hate you. Because <laughs> I feel like most of us do not have that. Most of us, yeah, like you said, Elizabeth, requirements tend to shift and morph a little bit as, as it gets closer to release. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to try that, actually. Yeah, I found it super helpful because I was like, I don't even know where to start with testing and breaking it down that way really helped me at least find a starting point. Because for me, I'm just like, oh God, this is so overwhelming. (laughs) But yeah, having like a very clear, like list out the requirements just in like plain English and Mm -hmm. go from there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think for those listening who are like, are are you obviously hopefully you're starting to get more interested in testing and maybe creating test suites for your own application. Like, I think the reality is, exists somewhere in the middle of what sort of Elizabeth and Arya are saying. Because um, yeah. I think Elizabeth's workflow, the first one you mentioned, is ideal if you had the time to like do all your tests first and then PR with it and then like, you know, update it and then go through each stage, always updating. But as we all know, we've run out of time with this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So it's like, you know, to, to Ari's point, like start out with like your high level, like critical things before you even write your code of what you think you need to test and then go through, let, let things iterate, let things change. And then to Elizabeth's point, like once it gets to the point where you basically started to finalize everything, revisit those initial tests you looked at, cover the key points that are going to, you know, cause maybe problems in the future and then just let it go. Don't try to do 100% coverage on like the features that you'll spend more like the return on investment on that is yeah. often far less than you you realize. So yeah. Funny enough though, we haven't we've talked a lot about testing, but we haven't talked much about the actual like um I guess did I say tooling or libraries? Because you mentioned yeah. Mocha and Chai, but I'm surprised I use Jest. <laughs> I was gonna say we haven't yeah. talked about Jest at all. Have you used Jest, um Elizabeth? No, I haven't, but Oh, okay. So we need to talk about snapshot testing because I think this is an important part. Uh, of... I haven't done it yet. And, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm missing out, but I, 
Well, I'm super hesitant to do it because to me, snapshot tests are extremely brittle. <laughs> well, so do you want to recap, Ari? What, what are snapshot tests? Uh, I think, Ben, you should handle that one. Handle you one. It up. <laughs> all right. All right. I think that that is fair. Um, you're so, so good at summarizing. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're way Give better. us a good summary. All right. Okay. So from my understanding, snapshot tests are supposed to cover, um, as we all know, when you're testing things, especially on the front end, you build things and ideally you would do visual regression every time. But there really is no good automated way or cheap. I think there are some very expensive ways of doing this where it'll output the page and then it'll take pictures and then it'll like cross the differences so that you'll know that if someone changed the padding, it'll like, you'll know these things. And so Jess is the in-between between this perfect visual regression testing that you would get with every deployment and doing none at all. Because what Jess does is it takes your component and it basically writes out all the markup and all the associated CSS classes in a file and then it saves that snapshot. So that in the future, if someone were to go in and let's say swap out a class, then you'll know you uh, sort of like a guess that like if you change the CSS class on something, this is going to change the output later on because obviously you've changed the class. And so it's supposed to serve as this sort of middle ground between full visual regression, automated testing, and none at all. Would you say that's somewhat what it sounds like to you, Ari? I think so. Um, currently looking at the chapter on snapshot tests. And- yeah. So <laughs> from what I understand, what happens is, yeah, so you write your component and then you can basically generate snapshots based on different scenarios. And those snapshots uh, might be like, what is my, um, let's say, what does my form look like when there's a success message? What does it look like when there's a failure message and like a warning? And then ideally, um, theoretically, as you go through, your snapshots will serve as this point of reference to what it should look like. That way when people make changes, even content changes, theoretically, it would actually break because then it doesn't match the snapshot. But to Ari's point, this does make snapshots rather brittle because anything can make your snapshot basically not match the current one. And so I've seen some people with snapshot tests who just always just update them and they're not really using them for verification. So that's obviously not great. Yeah, yeah. Because like, like, even though Ed's book recommends like, around 30% of your test should be snapshot tests. I'm like, I honestly have a hard time seeing the value. I really, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I feel like maybe I'm missing something, but because yeah, like I think, I just think I'd just be updating the snapshots all the time and never really running the snapshot tests. Or like if it failed, I'd be like, oh, better just update that snapshot. Now it's <laughs> Right. From what I've understood, the best way to use snapshots are things that where you're sort of finding a lot of visual regression bugs a lot, where maybe people are touching a particular component and either changing classes all the time or IDs and you find that it's a problematic, then it's kind of worth making sure you keep, like if it needs to be stable, then you use those snapshot tests to ensure that like, again, whether it's a modal or confirmation dialogue, that those are consistent with the given scenarios. But to your point, if you write snapshots for everything, most people just don't do a good job maintaining them and they just automatically update them, which kind of, removes up like there's no purpose yeah. it's not about testing at that point if you're just updating uh, updating them every time could a good use for that maybe be like say if you wanted to remove a chunk of legacy code mm-hmm. css then you could use a snapshot test to check if removing those dials had actually you know changed anything visually about your application is that a way you could use snapshot testing I mean, so, that sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, I don't think that the they actually include the CSS in there. I think they mainly render the template element. 
I think I get what she's saying. Like, so let's say it's cleanup time, you know, code maintenance mode. And you're like, I don't think this class is actually used in the output. Let let me just delete it. See if the test passes or fails. Because like, yeah, I I have totally had to do that. Because I don't know about you guys. I don't always clean up after myself as I go. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm a a bad dev. We all do this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You leave that console log and you're like, what is that even logging? (laughs) And then you keep forgetting to take it out. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm grateful for ESLint and all those other things. I know. (laughs) But there are some console logs that I... Oh yeah, I will intentionally leave in. So I don't even know how to balance that rule. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to your point, Elizabeth, I think it could be helpful in that regard as far as like just keeping track of any sort of legacy refactoring. Yeah, but so in other words, I understand Ari. What Ari's saying, which is, if you change something, most of the time you want to change the snapshot. You know, like yeah. if you're updating files, you want the test probably to fail, but. Yeah. If you're removing legacy code. I guess that's a time when you don't want the snapshot to change. That's a great point. I mean, all uh, of this assumes you actually do code maintenance from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That your company gives you time to refactor. Um, so now that we've spoken, covered a little bit on snapshot, um, obviously the three of us have minimum experience <laughs> with it, but it, it is worth looking into for those that um, haven't heard of it. It's just a technique to have in your tool belt. But have any of you done any integration tests? This, I think this is where it gets really tricky. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was I easy. wish I had. Integration have... tests with uh, like APIs or with, you know, between components? So like end-to-end testing, like E2E. So whether it's mm-hmm. Cypress, uh, I think it's not Nighting. Is it Nighting? Nightwatch. Nightwatch. Oh. No, I think Nightwatch. That might be a thing too, though. There's so many. There's so many. But I think Nightwatch and Cypress are the two that you can configure easily with Vue CLI. Yeah. yeah. From my understanding, Cypress is sort of the recommended one at this point. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. Nightwatch was the gold standard at one point. But does anyone <laughs> have a summary they have for like end-to-end testing that they'd like to define for our audience? <laughs> I'm going to volunteer you. Um, Oh, gosh. Okay, so from my understanding, um, end-to-end testing, we mentioned unit testing, which tests individual pieces of code. But the end-to-end is really a full integration suite where it'll actually, like, render the page on the screen. It'll, like, click... You'll be like, click this button, and then it'll go to a page, and then, like, fill out the form, and then, like, then click the form, and then verify that these things are showing up. So it actually, basically, it should integrate with some sort of... I can't say a real backend, but at least a mock one for sure, because you're supposed to be like hitting the APIs, getting responses. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it can be very useful, but I think most teams never get to the point where they end up writing that just because testing already is expensive as it is. And as you can imagine, end-to-end testing can be even harder <laughs> if you don't have the right infrastructure set up because you need basically all the pieces to be able to work together at all times. And also, they they literally just take time to run. Yes. And most and people that, don't want like their build to take half an hour because it's running end-to-end tests. 
Yeah, and it'd be one thing if it was reliable, but I, I know yeah. it's like I used to write like selenium tests back then, and they would you would have false negatives and false positives all the time. Oh. So it'd be like, oh, I can't find this thing, and it's because like the server took an extra second to because you, you know you have to define a wait time. Yeah. You can't just be like wait forever. So you're like, okay, wait ten seconds for the API, but then if it takes like eleven seconds, then your test failed, then you have to rerun it again because uh, yeah, so it can it can tough. be ex- <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little expensive time wise, but Definitely still, you know, I would say just, you know, if people have time, take a look at Cypress. Cypress is pretty great as far as like, they have like time travel. So as your tests run, it'll actually take like snapshots. And so you could even see like what it's looking like between different spots of your tests. And people seem to have had a good, those who have had the good fortune of actually being able to write tests, ETE tests for their um, application seem to have had a good experience with it. It's definitely on my to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) Because no, most of our failures in my app honestly come from integration issues. You might want to look into Cypress. I know. I know. And it's like, it, of course, it's all set up in my project. I just haven't actually written any <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking right now at some of the, like, the dashboards. Like, oh, yeah. I've heard that the graphical really... user interface support is incredible for Cypress. Yeah, it's so. really clean. Like, it'll be like, we're going to visit this link and then I want to type this thing in this input. Then I'm gonna like get the li and make sure that the label has the right thing. And again, like if you had the time and in an ideal world, like this this tool looks super promising. Yeah, I've been trying to uh, come up with a strategy to convince the QA team that they should write these tests, but so far <laughs> it hasn't worked. <laughs> I think I mentioned this before on the show, but like Meltano so is supposed to be like an open source like tool, and we so we build it with Vue. And it's starting to remind me that maybe Cypress would be a good fit for us because we do need to do a lot of manual, like click this button, make sure it goes through the pipeline, make sure it does this. So this might actually help us a lot. I may actually need to into this. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. It's one of those things where like in the back of my mind, I know it's an amazing idea. And and like, especially because I know it would save our test team like so much time. <laughs> but then you won't be building features, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So that, that was sort of why I was like, maybe I can convince the test team to take ownership. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know that like testing engineers are like a big field and there's just not yeah. enough people who do it. So in the event you're a fan of Vue, but you're also like, you know, I really could do this testing stuff full time. Like there's a lot of career opportunity out there for you. And because a lot of testers don't always come from a programming background. So if you have coding chops and you want to test like, I assure you that is a gold mine from like a you know job career perspective. There's yes, in fact, job. if anyone is considering that, I uh, I may have a job for you because <laughs> <laughs> I lost my UI tester <laughs> because he was too good at hardware integration testing. I knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what about accessibility testing? Do you do any of that, or what tools do you use? All right, I'll I'm go first. The fifth on that one. <laughs> so I've had the good fortune of listening to a number like at ViewComp talks. Callum gives a fantastic talk on accessibility in Vue. And so I think it's a combination. So I use the Chrome accessibility audit, which is just good for just quick checks, images, uh, sorry, sorry, like image alt text, those sort of things. But really, I think at the end of the day, from what I understand, you actually can escape some sort of manual accessibility testing especially with things like keyboard navigation and those sort of things. Like there's no tool that will make sure that, you know, when you're tapping through things, it makes sense and like that you can actually enter everything. And so for me, there's still a bit of manualness to it. 
I don't know. That's been my experience, at least so far, and knowledge of. I mean, Ari, what is your thoughts on this? <laughs> uh, my thoughts are: I'm a bad developer because <laughs> I don't do accessibility. <laughs> you can't do it all, Ari. I, I'm just one person. Literally, I'm a team of one. <laughs> so sorry. No, but I, like, literally, it is something that sort of haunts me every single day. That it's a choice I had to make, and yeah. I hate it. I really do. So yeah, I have nothing to contribute here. I mean, at the end of the day, though, especially, you know, if you're in a position like Ari, where you're the sole developer, like as long as you're using native HTML elements, trying to keep your headings somewhat in, you know, like... I try, okay? I yeah, try. as long as you're trying to, that's like, that's the, that's the main part. And then, especially if you're newer and you're like, let's say you're looking for design system too, using libraries like Beautify, those, they have actually built in the accessibility so that I wouldn't say that you, you, you couldn't forget about it, but you certainly can feel a lot more comfortable with the coverage you have from an accessibility yeah, perspective. Definitely at least makes it a lot easier to implement with things like that. Unfortunately, our design system is spaghetti. <laughs> What's your design system like? Uh, we don't really have one. Okay. <laughs> I've seen like spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's all custom CSS. That is one of the things that as time has allowed, I've tried to go back and refactor into reusable components and things. Mm-hmm. And that was actually how I started writing unit tests was testing the reusable components because that that definitely felt like a very safe and valuable place to start. Because <laughs> usually like, you know, a, a selection menu, that's going to have pretty clear requirements what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's looking for a place to start, that is a great place to start. Because it's very small and clearly defined. Yeah. What about you, Elizabeth? What's your experience been with accessibility and testing? Um, you know, I also use a Chrome plugin, like you said. Try to use a screen reader to make sure that things are reading out in a sensical way. Check keyboard navigation and things like that. And um, or I try to expose myself to accessibility um, learning opportunities as much as I can. I just went to a conference. It was a free conference in Seattle called, um, hang on, let me remember what it was called. <laughs> I don't find it in my email. Either way, it was really cool. I would recommend people go if you, if it's held in other cities too. I say, you don't hear of that many free conferences. It was free. And then if you paid $10, they would give you lunch. And it was actually a really good lunch. Yeah, it was called Accessibility Camp Seattle 2019. Nice. And it was basically an unconference. So I don't know if you've ever done something like that. But um, what's that? Yeah, what is an yeah, unconference? I hadn't done anything like that before either. Basically, you just show up. And there are people who also have showed up, have talks prepared, and they kind of pitch their talk ideas to the audience. And we just vote online for what everybody is most interested in. And the top votes get um, to go ahead and do their talks for the people that attended. And they kind of split up the whole conference into different rooms with different talks going on different times. So you could, first of all, give an input to what you actually want to learn about. And secondly, you can choose um, the topics that you want to attend. So it was cool. Got to hear from a lot of people from different companies around Seattle and hear what they're doing for accessibility. And, you know, it brought up a lot of concerns that I, I hadn't necessarily thought about before. Like one of the things that they were saying there is that placeholders are really, really bad for accessibility, even if you have a label, because people think that they're filled out. People think that the form is filled out when 
you have a placeholder in there and it can be confusing for, for a lot of users. Oh. And also, um, it's, there are other reasons why, uh, why placeholders are bad for accessibility, but that was the one that I found the most interesting because uh, I hadn't really thought about that before. So what do they recommend instead? Do you just have like tool tips to like, because I mean, for visual users, placeholders are helpful for giving you context of like what kinds of things you might expect? So I had heard that before, or I had at least heard that at a minimum, it can confuse users. So whenever, but I do run into certain situations where I strongly feel the need to provide some context and guidance with a placeholder. So in those situations, I usually start out the placeholder with like E dot G dot, you know, so mm-hmm. that it, to, you know, specifically call it out as an example <laughs> of what you might put there. Because, yeah. That's a great point. Good idea. But I don't think that anyone suggested that. So that, that sounds like a good idea. And I think the official suggestion that they gave was to just use a label and make sure that your label is clear enough that you don't need a placeholder. And so with that's, hard to that's, great. <laughs> that's great in theory, but like yeah. I know that especially those of us who work with apps that are in a very niche market yeah. with very sort of esoteric <laughs> data being collected. I actually have an example. So I have an, a form input where I have to collect an IP address with, this thing on the end, I can't remember what it's called now, but like, so it's like the format of it looks like a regular IP address, but then there's a slash and like 24. I'm sure networking people are like, oh, it's this thing. Oh, so dumb. <laughs> but at this moment, I can't remember. And on that one, I felt the need to provide an example because like, uh, yeah. I felt yeah. like people who knew what the wording was, I think there's more than one way that you can provide that info. So giving a very explicit format meant that it, they didn't have to do a lot of guesswork to pass my regex. <laughs> Cause I mean, nobody likes doing that. Yeah. And I think another problem with placeholders is just that they're re- light colored. The color contrast is kind of low. Mm. So that could be another yeah, issue. Definitely. And then if you make it darker, then it does look like yeah. it's filled out. <laughs> so it's hard to, they're really tricky to deal with. But yeah, that was one example of something that, that I learned at that conference. That's also, awesome. they're talking about non-web accessibility. So one of the speakers worked for the bus system here in Seattle, and she's talking about how, how they make the buses accessible for people. And also, how do they make the schedules accessible for people, you know, people who need wheelchairs. So much consideration goes into all of those things, which is great. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Does anyone have any final thoughts about testing that they want to bring up before we wrap up and move on to picks? I think I'm good. Yeah, we covered it. Yeah, this has been this has been really great. I have definitely learned a lot. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. Ari, would you like to go first with picks? Yes, uh, my pick this week is Top of the Lake, which is available to view on Hulu. If you like shows like True Detective and you love Elizabeth Moss, this is the perfect show for you. 
I will say, fair warning, the content can be a little rough. So if uh, if you're not in a good headspace, maybe don't watch it yet. <laughs> awesome. Elizabeth, what piece do you have for us this week? I also have one, and that is Victor Mono, which is a free programming font that I have been using recently. It's really pretty, and it has cursive italics, which I like, and literature. Nice. Um, how do you say it? Ligatures? Ligatures? Ligatures, so, yes. <laughs> ligatures. Awesome. So my pick for this week is also a TV show. It is uh, Supernatural. So when I was at Comic-Con, I actually went to the panel for them. And they're in their last season of like forever. So um, I know I'm starting super late because they have like 15 seasons. But it's been a lot of fun watching it. So highly recommended for those that um, enjoy sort of like... It's like horror, sci-fi... Or not sci-fi, but like, you know, fiction. But yeah... And I think the I think the panel on the, as a whole can agree on testing Vue.js applications by Ed Yerboro as a pick for all the testing stuff that we've been talking about. So we'll make sure to include those things below in the show notes. And with that said, that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thanks for joining us, and until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.